Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, child kidnapping, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. August 1997. Barry Mills sat in his solitary confinement cell in a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. There was a knock on the door. Then a piece of mail was slipped through the small metal slot. The 49-year-old mustachioed skinhead put down his trademark crocheting and picked up the envelope. It was a letter from the federal penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Hidden in the seemingly innocent letter was a kite, a secret message passed between prisoners. An Aryan Brotherhood lieutenant had written that a war had broken out with a rival gang, the DC Blacks. The Lewisburg Brotherhood members needed permission to escalate the war. Mills, by now one of the two main leaders of the AB, was being asked to authorize a prison hit on the rumored DC Black leader, Abdul Salam. It would be the most effective way for the Brotherhood to maintain control. A week later, the Brotherhood members in Lewisburg gathered around and held a match underneath Mills's response. The message, written in urine as a makeshift invisible ink, was unambiguous. Murder the competition. Later that day, Al Benton forced his way into Abdul Salam's cell and put a 12-inch shank straight through his throat. Salam died almost instantly. From 1,600 miles away, Barry Mills had ordered the death of a man he'd never even met. And he thought his connection to the crime would never be discovered. What Mills and his gang didn't know was that they were being watched. 
the U.S. Marshals had cracked the Brotherhood's codes. For the first time in decades, they had a paper trail connecting Barry Mills to murder. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our second episode on the Aryan Brotherhood and one of its most dangerous leaders, Barry Mills. Last week, we examined how the Brotherhood rose in response to the violence at San Quentin State Prison and how it spread to federal prisons across the United States. This week, we'll take a closer look at the gang's drug smuggling operation and the unique challenges of stopping criminals who are already serving life in prison. By the 1980s, the Aryan Brotherhood, the white supremacist prison gang founded in San Quentin, California, had taken control of the drug trade in many federal and state prisons across the country. In the process, they gained a reputation for incredibly violent prison executions. But they also perfected the art of keeping their operations quiet. One of the gang's leaders, Barry Mills, was seen only when he had to be, only personally committing a few brutal executions. Instead, he preferred to stay in the shadows. Unlike most American gangs of the 20th century, the Aryan Brotherhood's code of silence has never been fully broken. There are no memoirs or exposés. What we know about Mills and most of his brotherhood comes almost exclusively from their legal records. After Mills' murder of John Marsloff in 1979, he would not go to trial again for over 30 years making it all the more difficult to understand what happened in the meantime. However, some Aryan Brotherhood members weren't content to fly under the radar like Mills. For example, when terrible Tom Silverstein arrived in the federal prison in Marion, Illinois in 1981, he wanted to make an impression. Marion had opened in 1963, the same year that Alcatraz closed, with the intention of holding some of America's most dangerous prisoners. As his nickname suggests, Terrible Tom was considered to be that dangerous, likely due to his association with the Aryan Brotherhood in California. He had come a long way from his suburban Southern California upbringing. Silverstein grew up in Long Beach, California. His father was a criminal, and his parents' marriage ended in divorce. His mother remarried a Jewish man who adopted Tom. Clearly, this did nothing to stop Tom from joining a white supremacist gang. In fact, for the rest of his life, he would beat the hell out of anyone who called him a Jew. 
Silverstein spent the 1970s in and out of prison for various bank robberies. This included the 1977 Fresno robbery that sent him, Barry Mills, and almost a dozen other AB members to federal prison. But after being pinched in 1977, it appeared that Silverstein decided he'd rather stay behind bars. In 1980, Silverstein was convicted of murdering a fellow inmate in Leavenworth, Kansas. Later, he murdered another inmate, Danny Atwell, over a drug dispute. Silverstein was given a life sentence and transferred to Marion, Illinois. At first glance, Silverstein was an unlikely gangster, with long flowing hair and a penchant for the arts. For decades, criminal prosecutors would marvel at his impeccable penmanship in jailhouse letters. Invariably, he would end them with a huge looping signature that read, Terrible Tom. But Silverstein never let his artistic pursuits get in the way of business. And in the Aryan Brotherhood, where there was business, murder was never far behind. In Marion, Silverstein faced off against the DC Blacks, a gang that would prove to be the AB's most consistent enemy. Their beef would eventually lead to a brutal murder in Lewisburg a quarter century later. As the name suggests, the DC Blacks were an African-American gang that formed in Washington, DC prisons in the 1960s and 70s. By the early 80s, it had a strong position in Marion. Since their very beginnings, the Aryan Brotherhood had been designed as a white alternative to black prison gangs. Silverstein knew an enemy when he saw one. And the DC Blacks weren't just any gang. They were the number one rival narcotics distributor in Marion. They would have to be neutralized. On November 2nd, 1981, DC Blacks leader Robert Chappelle was found dead from multiple stab wounds in his cell in Marion. Word spread that Silverstein was the man behind the knife. But the DC Blacks didn't get the message. They continued to hassle Silverstein, and they refused to concede the drug trade to the Aryan Brotherhood. So Silverstein had to go bigger. On September 27, 1982, he cornered another DC Blacks leader, Raymond Cadillac Smith in a secluded corner of the yard. Silverstein drew his shank and stabbed Smith all over his torso. The autopsy later reported he was stabbed 67 times. After murdering Smith, Silverstein paraded his body through the halls of the prison, announcing to every inmate that he was in control. As a symbol, it wasn't unlike Barry Mills walking through the Atlanta prison yard covered in John Marsloff's blood. The only difference was, terrible Tom Silverstein had gone after a much bigger fish. Within three months, the other DC Blacks members in Lewisburg retaliated. On December 9th, they murdered Aryan Brotherhood member Neil Baumgarten. A war had officially begun. This conflict, which Silverstein was instrumental in setting up, would last for decades. And while Silverstein may have started the war, he would soon be caught up in a different battle that would consume the rest of his life. In prisons throughout the country, the guards didn't bother the Aryan Brotherhood, 
and the Brotherhood didn't bother the guards. In fact, from its inception, the gang had benefited from the implicit support of racist guards. Occasionally, the AB would even involve a guard into one of their drug-running operations. But in his three long years in Marion, Silverstein had begun to despise one guard in particular, Merle Klutz. The 51-year-old Klutz had served as a correctional officer for 19 years. He was tough as nails, and he made a point of showing Tom Silverstein that in Marion, no one was above the law. According to others at the prison, Klutz was the only guard who didn't fear Silverstein. He would walk up to the prisoner and rough him up, saying, I'm running this, you're not running it. On the morning of October 22, 1983, the 31-year-old Silverstein got his chance for revenge. Around 10.30 a.m., Klutz, along with two other guards, handcuffed Silverstein to transfer him to another cell. While being escorted down the hall, Silverstein abruptly stopped and thrust his handcuffs into a nearby cell. In an instant, a co-conspirator inside managed to break the cuffs and hand Silverstein a foot-long shank. Before any of the guards knew what was happening, Silverstein struck. He stabbed Klutz 43 times, leaving him dead. That same day, another AB member at the same prison stabbed a different guard to death. When asked why, he said it was so that Silverstein didn't have bragging rights about the highest body count. It was the first time in history that two federal prison guards were killed the same day. It's possible that Silverstein's murder of Klutz was part of a broader Aryan Brotherhood strategy to build up their legend. But it's perhaps more likely that Silverstein just went off the rails on his own. Whatever the case, the murder of Klutz all but ended Silverstein's activity for the AB. For the next 36 years, he was held in Hannibal Lecter-style solitary confinement, forbidden access to even a razor or comb. He died in 2019. The double murder at Marion appeared to be a tipping point for the rest of the Brotherhood as well. A year earlier, the murders of two civilians, Richard Barnes and Elizabeth Hickey, had proven effective in growing the gang's legend. But the murder of two correctional officers was a step too far. They didn't just gain notoriety among other prisoners, they made themselves a target for law enforcement. Mills had wanted a professional organized crime unit, but the warrior mentality that the Brotherhood cultivated was making them too high profile. The violence would only get worse from here, and the fallout would nearly bring the gang to its knees. Coming up, the Aryan Brotherhood begins to eat itself. Now, back to the story. By the early 1980s, the Aryan Brotherhood had expanded nationally and broken into the drug trade. But a recent string of violent acts threatened to undo everything they'd built. Terrible Tom Silverstein's murder of a correctional officer effectively put an end to his time as a leading member in Marion, Illinois. 
and along with the murders of two civilians the year before, a major target had been put on the AB's back. After 1983, a moderate faction led by 35-year-old Barry Mills appears to have taken control of the Aryan Brotherhood. How exactly this happened is unclear due to the silence surrounding the organization. But the result was a renewed focus on the business side of their operations. The Brotherhood became obsessed with growing profits and territory. They spent the next decade pursuing a slow growth model, solidifying control of the prisons they were already in before expanding any further. But the Aryan Brotherhood was a cult of machismo. It was inevitable that they would once again attract the kind of men who thrived on attention. Michael Mac Mickelhinney was just that kind of guy. He entered the Marion, Illinois federal lockup in 1989 for possession of methamphetamine with intention to distribute, illegal possession of a firearm, and intended murder of a witness. Mickelhinney received 21 years, and he intended to serve them in style. The details on how he joined the Aryan Brotherhood are murky, but in his five years at Marion, he became one of the most feared members of the gang. In the summer of 1994, he was transferred to Leavenworth, Kansas. And when he stepped off the bus, he pulled open his jumpsuit to show off the massive shamrock tattoo on his chest. There was already a strong AB presence at Leavenworth, and from the moment he arrived, Mickelhinney was their new boss. Within months, there was no part of the prison economy that Mickelhinney didn't have a hand in. Male prostitution, extortion rackets, murder contracts. He cornered the market. He consolidated the distribution of Pruno, a prison wine made of fruit juice often fermented in a toilet tank. Mickelhinney even organized a multi-tier gambling operation within the prison. The high rollers, generally drug lords, would be allowed to play on credit for one month at a time. At the end of the month, the bets would be settled on the outside. Leavenworth is likely our best point of insight into the operations of the Aryan Brotherhood, which was, by that time, active in at least half a dozen federal lockups and various California prisons. The Aryan Brotherhood, under the shadow leadership of Barry Mills, had become one of America's best organized and most profitable gangs. But it wasn't all pruno and poker. For the Brotherhood, as for any crime ring, narcotics, especially opiates, presented a great opportunity and a massive risk. Whether the Brotherhood oversaw and approved the operation, or if Mickelhinney, a former drug runner, set up the business on his own, is unclear. But we do know that by 1995, Mickelhinney was deep in the heroin trade. The profits, according to those on the inside, could be immense. At the time, a gram of heroin was going for $65 on the street. In prison, the same amount could be repackaged into 10 doses, sold for $100 a piece. $65 became $1,000 thanks to the prison economy. The money practically made itself. All they had to do was set up distribution. While most Brotherhood chapters relied on their own members and the wannabe members they called Peckerwoods to get drugs in and out of prison, 
McElhenney had other techniques. McElhenney was a classic bully. Unlike the white supremacist gladiators of the San Quentin Yard, he didn't go after the strongest he could find. Instead, he turned to the weakest. Sometime in 1995, McElhinney began working over Walter Moles. Walter was the opposite of an Aryan Brotherhood member, an underweight, meek drug addict. McElhinney had learned that Moles had a terminally ill father. From there, he had his angle. For the next few weeks, Aryan Brotherhood goons intimidated Moles, who they identified as a punk, prison slang for homosexual. They told Moles that there was only one way he could avoid a brutal beating. His father had to help them smuggle in heroin. Moles called his father and begged him to help. According to his doctors, the old man only had six months left to live. It was an easy choice for him. He had to try and help his son even if it meant diving into the world that had destroyed his son's life. By this point, the Brotherhood had a well-established smuggling routine. First, they would package the drugs in condoms or plastic bags and deliver them to their contact on the outside. Next, they had to get it past security. Unless the prisoner is being held in maximum security, prison guards typically don't search visitors thoroughly. Instead, if they think it's necessary, they'll strip-search the inmates on their way in and out of visitation. With Walter Moles, no one would find it necessary. McElhinney had targeted him precisely because he was low-risk, a nobody. His father must have been terrified heading to federal prison, woozy from his cancer treatments and carrying a condom filled with roughly a ping-pong ball's worth of heroin in his pocket. But to his shock, the guards barely patted him down. He was quickly ushered into the visitation room. The visitation room at Leavenworth was crowded, but there were guards everywhere. A simple handoff wouldn't be enough. But the Brotherhood had a plan for that, too. Moles and his father made awkward small talk while waiting for Walter's cup of coffee to cool. Once the coffee had finally reached a tepid room temperature, Walter nodded to his father. Walter's father went to the bathroom, fished the heroin out of his pocket, and put it in his mouth. It felt massive to him, a giant lump in his cheek that every guard would notice immediately. But when he walked out of the bathroom, no one looked at him twice. He made his way back to Walter's table and sat down. Then he brought the coffee cup to his mouth and spit the heroin inside. Walter Moles looked down at the styrofoam cup and immediately thought there had been a mistake. The AB members had told him the heroin would be split into multiple small balls, not one massive one. This seemed way too big to swallow. But he had no choice. Moles knew that not only could they kill him, they could also hurt his family on the outside. It took him over a minute to swallow the heroin, tears in his eyes, while his dying father watched. In the end, Walter Moles succeeded. He swallowed the heroin, made it through the security check, 
The next day, after it passed, he gave it to the Aryan Brotherhood. Moles hoped that his nightmare was over. He had delivered on his end, now maybe he could serve out his sentence in peace, or potentially even with a little protection. But that wasn't Mikkelhini's style. A few days later, Walter Moles found himself out on the yard surrounded by the same set of Aryan Brotherhood goons who had convinced him to become a mule in the first place. When Moles asked what was wrong, the men were silent. Then they struck. They delivered a brutal beating to the small man, breaking multiple bones. Years later, when he was asked why he did it, McElhenney simply responded, screw the little punk. It was a senseless crime, far removed from the calculated murders that had earned the gang respect. From the perspective of law enforcement and brotherhood leadership, Moles was small potatoes. He was never going to bring in copious amounts of heroin, nor would he be the smoking gun to bring down Mac Mickelhinney. In the end, Mickelhinney's weakness wasn't his callous cruelty. It was his own heroin addiction. Whether Mickelhinney had been an addict long before he started smuggling, or if he picked up the habit in prison, we don't know. But as the undisputed leader of the Leavenworth AB, there was no one to tell him not to get high off his own supply. Or that his drug-fueled delusions might not be fully accurate. As 1995 drew on, Mickelhinney's cell became a bona fide drug den. He and his lieutenants would sit for hours in the smoke-filled room, going over lists of supposed enemies he had drawn up. From the beginning, the Brotherhood had been obsessed with finding rats, but Mickelhenny took it to a new level. When Barry Mills and the council ordered a hit, they usually at least had evidence that the target was actually an informant. More importantly, they put the attacks up to a vote, allowing the central Aryan Brotherhood leadership to decide if the hit was worth the risk. But Mickelhenny, fueled by heroin and a huge amount of self-confidence, wanted to act faster. One night while going over the enemies list, one of Mickelhenny's cronies declared with no evidence that Charles Bubba Ledger was informing. Ledger was an easy target. The older, overweight man had become an Aryan Brotherhood member thanks to his skill with a jailhouse tattoo gun. He wouldn't put up much of a fight. Mickelhenny acted fast. He delegated the hit to 32-year-old Charles Story, a hanger-on trying to earn his way into the Brotherhood. A few days later, Bubba Ledger was standing in the yard when Charles Story sidled up to him. The two men acknowledged each other. Story turned as if to walk away. Then he saw Bubba duck down. Story spun around and pulled a 12-inch metal shank from his waistband, only to find Bubba already brandishing a sharpened plastic toothbrush. But Story was younger and larger. He was able to overpower Bubba and stabbed him 15 times. After years of service in the Aryan Brotherhood, Bubba Ledger had been killed by one of his own. Immediately, 
word spread around Leavenworth, and a terror took hold over the gang. Bubba Ledger was known to be a stand-up guy. No one believed he was a snitch. By all appearances, Mickelhenny had lost his mind. Within weeks of the murder, Mickelhenny came up with a half dozen more supposed informants for his hit list, but no one wanted to kill them because, as it turned out, there was something to Mac's drug-fueled paranoia. The Aryan Brotherhood was under more scrutiny than ever before. The feds were cracking down, and Story proved to be their big break. When he was questioned about Bubba's murder, Story flipped. He was easily convinced to take a plea deal in exchange for informing on Mickelhinney. From there, the dominoes started to fall. It wasn't long before Mickelhinney's own cellmate turned on him. He was afraid that, even if he didn't, Mickelhinney would kill him anyway, just like he'd done to Bubba Ledger. It would take over five years, but Mickelhinney would eventually be convicted of heroin distribution. And perhaps more impactful, the Aryan Brotherhood would never regain its control of Leavenworth Prison. From his cell in Florence, Colorado, Barry Mills watched the chaos unfold. As per usual, Mills decided to remain silent, concerning himself with the other prisons in his empire, like Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. As the 1990s came to a close, he had his eyes firmly on the future. But the past was still due to catch up with him. There's no way he could have known that, of all of his crimes, it would be a decades-old gang feud that would put him in the most legal danger. Coming up, the federal case against the Aryan Brotherhood closes in. Now, back to the story. In the late 1990s, Barry Mills and his Aryan Brotherhood faced a couple of major hiccups in their operations. In Leavenworth, Kansas, the drug-fueled paranoia of Mac Mickelhenny led to the AB chapter all but folding. And in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, the decades-long war with the DC Blacks culminated in the 1997 assassination of Abdul Salam. Mills himself gave his blessing for the hit from his cell in Florence, Colorado. It definitely wasn't the first time the Brotherhood had killed the DC Blacks leader. Mills probably would have thought nothing about the request. And for years, there didn't seem to be any reason to worry. By the early 2000s, Mills and the other leaders thought the worst was over for the Brotherhood. Little did they know that throughout the 1990s, the government had been building a case to bring them all down. On a cold, damp December morning in 2002, the US Marshals mounted up and headed for Del Norte County, California. For weeks, the Marshals had been preparing in total secrecy for a massive dragnet unlike any in recent decades. It was time to tighten the noose on the Aryan Brotherhood. At the westernmost tip of the California coast, almost a dozen federal agents dressed in black fatigues and bulletproof vests drove into Pelican Bay State Prison, 
the most dangerous supermax facility in the state. Armed with assault rifles, the agents walked down a hall littered with video cameras, past windowless cells where the top-risk prisoners are held 24-7. These were men too dangerous for any other prison. In the words of the corrections officers, they had earned their way in. Four prisoners were removed from their cells, strip-searched, restrained, and loaded onto a private plane docked at a nearby landing strip. Pelican Bay wasn't the only penitentiary that was visited by the U.S. Marshals that day. The same scene played out at prisons all over the nation, as aging skinheads covered in Nazi tattoos were loaded onto chartered jets. In total, the Marshals gathered up 29 members of the Aryan Brotherhood, including 54-year-old Barry Mills. The next day, Mills and the others found themselves in Los Angeles, California, where assistant U.S. attorney Gregory Jessner had hit the gang with RICO charges, the same kind that had broken the Italian mafia. The entire Aryan Brotherhood leadership, made up of 29 inmates, five women, three ex-cons, and a prison guard, were all on trial. As Mills and the others learned, Jessner had been putting together the case throughout most of the 1990s. And over the course of his investigation, the baby-faced prosecutor had gone from rookie to veteran. Jessner was disturbed by the AB's white supremacist ideology and by the sense among law enforcement that, since the leaders were already serving life sentences, prosecuting them was a futile effort. So Jessner proposed hitting them with an overwhelming force that even the Brotherhood couldn't have dreamed of. When Mills and the rest of the gang saw the charges against them, they were shocked. Jessner was asking for 23 counts of the death penalty, the most ever requested in a federal trial in the U.S. before or since. Jessner claimed that Mills was one of the two top dogs in the Brotherhood. He argued that Mills, along with T.D. Bingham, had planned and carried out dozens of murders and other crimes. Mills had been serving life in prison since 1979, 23 years, nearly half of his life. And after decades of running his business uninterrupted, he came to believe that he was untouchable. Now, it seemed his entire empire was about to crumble. Jessner knew he had an airtight case. He had flipped dozens of former members, and he had written evidence in the form of thousands of letters that implicated all of the leadership in a series of murders. With the thousands of exhibits and depositions that Jessner had assembled, the legal proceedings took four years. The amount of documents the judges and lawyers had to pour through was insurmountable. The final trial stretched out for an unusually long four months in 2006. Jessner charged Mills and Bingham with conspiracy to commit at least 30 murders. However, Jessner narrowed in on one in particular, the assassination of DC Black's leader, Abdul Salam. The evidence was undeniable. 
Mills, Bingham, and many others had spoken about the hit on recorded lines and exchanged signed letters about it. Jessner hoped the evidence of such a massive conspiracy would force the courts to resort to capital punishment. Mills and his defense attorneys kept their story straight. Prison was a dangerous place, they said, and the Aryan Brotherhood was just a self-defense organization. Mills claimed that every one of the informants who had turned against him did so to reduce their own sentences, so of course they would feed into any narrative the government gave them. In many ways, Mills's defense rested on the old prison guard motto of no humans involved. Every culprit and victim was a felon, inhuman in the eyes of the prison system. Sure, he claimed, I may have had some hand in some violent acts, but when all the victims were convicted felons, didn't they have it coming? The jury wasn't swayed. On July 26, 2006, their verdict was in. Mills and Bingham were found guilty of every charge. Jessner and his team could feel the excitement building. For Jessner, this case would be the pinnacle of his entire career. Then came the sentencing. Name after name was followed by the phrase, life in prison without parole. They would all be going right back to the prisons they came from, with essentially no consequences. In June of 2006, Mills and Bingham returned to Florence, Colorado. Their four years on trial had served almost as a vacation for the two men, who were now pushing 60. And as vacations go, it wasn't so bad. Private jets, sunny Los Angeles, it could have been a lot worse. And with the vacation over and the death penalty avoided, Mills was able to return to business as usual. The four-year legal battle did cause some minor setbacks for the Brotherhood's drug business. But once Mills was back inside in 2006, he and the others were able to rebuild what was lost and forge ahead. After the government's big push to bring down the AB, Mills retreated once more into the shadows, running things as he had for over two decades. And the Brotherhood would continue to flourish. To this day, the Aryan Brotherhood remains a powerful force in America's prisons. Their canny legal maneuvers have become the playbook for prison gangs worldwide. As street gangs have lost power in the past two decades, prison gangs like the Aryan Brotherhood have remained. In some ways, they are the last men standing. At least we can say for certain that Barry Mills is no longer in control. In 2018, he died in prison of natural causes at the age of 70. But without reform, his noxious legacy may live forever in our federal penitentiaries. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Barry Mills and the Aryan Brotherhood, amongst the many sources we consulted, we found The Brand by David Brand for The New Yorker to be a great read. 
You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Kingpins was written by Gareth Imperato, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. <laughs> <laughs>